And as we get ready to hear from Sean this morning, uh, as we prepare our hearts for that, we are actually going to say the Apostles' Creed together um, to just help center us. Um, And so as we say these words together, uh, let us be reminded that this is a proclamation of our faith. Um, This is what we believe, and I think it's powerful when we say um, and proclaim those words together as God's people. So will you say this with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Wonderful. Well, I am going to give you an opportunity now. As we've proclaimed our faith, as we've stated what we believe, we said the passing of the peace this morning. And so we're going to take an opportunity now to greet one another in such a way. And so you can see the words on the screen. So feel free to get up, maybe move around a bit, give a handshake, and and say these words of peace to one another. And they'll stay on the screen for your reference. So I invite you now to get up and and take a time to greet one another. with you. All right, feel free to return to your seats. You're wonderful pastors of the peace. Also with you. Wonderful, thank you. I'm going to invite Sean up now to share with us. All right, thank you, Becca, and good job passing the peace. Good job, and good morning. After a week off, we return to our studies in the Gospel of John, where we are in the upper room with the disciples the night before Jesus goes to the cross. Now here at PBCC, we have a family value called life in the spirit through grace. As you may know, our guiding principle here is to know Jesus and to make him known. And the way we do that is through four family values, devotion to the word, participation in God's work, discipleship through relationships, and life in the spirit through grace. Today, we'll be focusing on that last one, life in the spirit through grace. On our website, we say this about that value. 
The Spirit is who connects us to Jesus, enables us to know him, and empowers us to make him known. Well, after exploring our text for today, we may need to reword that description. Because as we will discover, the Spirit is doing much more than that when he lives inside of us. And it's all such good news. So let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to enlighten us and help us understand. And now in your mercy and grace, we ask that you would make these words from John come alive in our lives as never before. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, we learned a lot about the Holy Spirit. We learned that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete, not parakeet. Paraclete. We learned that the paraclete is personal, the third person of the Trinity, whom Jesus describes as another of the same kind. He's another just like Jesus, such that his presence is just like the presence of Jesus. And in fact, the presence, his presence is so intimate because he's not only with us, he is in us. And you can't get closer than in. After Jesus returns to the Father, he will call the paraclete in alongside of us to do a whole host of things. And we discussed two of those things last time. He goes to work inside of us, making us holy and whole, W-H-O-L-E, just like the most whole person to have ever lived, Jesus himself. He also goes to work inside of us as the spirit of truth, guiding us into all truth. And today, we will discover more about this truth work of the Holy Spirit. So I invite you into our text today, John 14, beginning at verse 25. Hear these words of Jesus. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, and that's the word paraclete, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is going away. And it seems he's trying to wake up his disciples to this fact. Hey guys, I'm leaving soon and I'm not canceling my plans. I'm actually going. So time is running out and I'm speaking all of these things to you before I leave you physically. And from the questions we've heard from the disciples so far in the upper room, it seems they haven't really been able to retain much of what Jesus has told them for the last three years. So how in the world will they retain what he's saying right now? Answer, the paraclete. The paraclete will help them. The paraclete, the, speak, the spirit of truth, will come alongside of them and be in them 
to help them. There is hope. (laughs) There's hope for these anxious, afraid, confused disciples because of the paraclete. He will help them. And he will help them in two specific ways. He will teach them all things, and he will bring to their remembrance all that Jesus has said. So let's look at these two ministries of the paraclete. First, the paraclete will help disciples remember. The paraclete will bring to remembrance all that Jesus taught them. In the absence of Jesus' physical presence, the paraclete, the spirit of truth, will remind disciples of all that he said. All that he said while he walked the earth. This is an amazing promise, isn't it? Now, I agree with most people who see this promise primarily fulfilled in the writing of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John The spirit of truth helps the eyewitnesses remember all that Jesus taught and then helps these eyewitnesses write it all down. So all the long discourses in John, the bread of life discourse, the good shepherd discourse, this upper room discourse, they're all fulfillments of promise. The parables in Luke, a fulfillment of promise. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, a fulfillment of promise. The Olivet Discourse in Mark, a fulfillment of promise. How did the Spirit do it? I don't know, but he did. And what it means is every time you pick up the Gospel of John, you're picking up the Gospel according to the paraclete through John. When you pick up the Gospel of Luke, you're reading the Gospel according to the paraclete through Luke. So yes, the Gospels were written by human hands, but also through the paraclete. As the paraclete brought to remembrance all that Jesus said. And of course, the paraclete continues to do that today. Which is such great news for me because my memory doesn't work anymore. (laughs) But this explains those times, right, when it seems like the words of Jesus just pop into our minds. It happened to me just last week. I was talking to a friend, and the friend was sharing with me how his neighbor had become quite hostile to him. And yet my friend has continued to call this neighbor and continued to try to make amends, to try to make peace with with this neighbor. And I just remind, in my mind, it popped in, love your enemies. And I just reminded my friend, hey, you're, you're loving your enemies just as Jesus said. You're living the way of Jesus by doing this. And it greatly encouraged him. Now, it goes without saying that to be reminded of something is to have known it already. (laughs) So here's another encouragement, to soak in the words of Jesus, to soak in them, and then rely on the Spirit to remind you of them, 
at the appropriate time. What a gift. What a gift we have in the paraclete. Now, secondly, the truth work of the paraclete also includes teaching all things to the disciples. What does that mean? Well, it means that the paraclete will teach all things concerning the revelation of Jesus. And primarily, I think this refers to teaching the implications of the world-changing events that are soon to happen. The crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. In chapter 16, Jesus will say to those disciples that he has many more things to tell them, but they can't bear them now. In other words, there will eventually be a time when they will be able to bear them, sometime after the events happen. So I see this promise primarily fulfilled in the writing of the letters of the New Testament, in the letters of Peter and Paul and James and Jude, the letter to the Hebrews and all the others. What Jesus couldn't teach the disciples before going to the Father, he taught them through the teaching ministry of the paraclete after going to the Father. So the teaching ministry of the paraclete would enable those first disciples to begin to understand and write down all the implications of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension which is Jesus' path to the Father. Jesus couldn't teach those implications before they happened. The disciples wouldn't have been able to bear it. They wouldn't have understood. The events had to happen first. Then the paraclete could begin his truth-teaching ministry. And the disciples could then unpack all that really happened with Jesus dying, rising, and ascending. So every time we open one of the New Testament letters, we're reading the work of the Spirit of Truth. This, is, this explains why these words, they seem to, to live. They seem to pop off the page, kind of like those pop-up books when you read to your kids. They become three-dimensional. When we read these these words of Peter and Paul, James and John, and they're the work of the spirit of truth. They've been breathed by the very breath of God. And of course, the spirit continues to do this today. It may not be in the same way as he taught those first disciples because we already have the New Testament with us. But as we study the word, don't we invite the spirit to teach us? to illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth of Jesus. That's what we do when we read Scripture. So as we live life in the Spirit, the Spirit is working inside of us, teaching us, and helping us remember everything about Jesus. What a gift! What a gift we have in the paraclete. This is what happens in a life lived in the Spirit through grace. But there's more to this truth work. Verse 27. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So life in the Spirit is characterized by the teaching and reminding ministry of the paraclete. But in this passage, we also see that life in the Spirit is characterized by peace, love, and fearlessness. Life in the Spirit is characterized by peace, One of the key effects of the indwelling spirit is peace and the desire to be a peacemaker. Now, as we said last time, when the spirit takes up residence in our lives, he goes to work putting us back together again, making us look like Jesus himself. He works in us to stamp the character of Jesus in us. Now, it's a bit like a seal, A seal that imprints an image into clay or wax. In the ancient world, a seal was used around documents to say who the document belonged to. In the same way, the Spirit impresses the character traits of Jesus upon us so that people know who we belong to. Now, these character traits are called the fruits of the paraclete, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now those first three, love, joy, peace, are key themes through this upper room. And here Jesus says, don't be anxious, don't be afraid, the paraclete will stamp my peace upon you. Jesus intersects us on the road of life, inserts his paraclete inside of us, and something happens. Peace happens. Now, this peace is not like the world's peace. In the Roman world, Pax Romana was the world's peace. And we all know Pax Romana was a complete joke. It certainly wasn't peace for the little people and it certainly wasn't peace for the world because Rome destroyed everyone in its way. And it certainly didn't reach the human heart. Today, listen to any politician speak and they'll promise to bring peace and prosperity, right? Or listen to any advertisement and they'll promise, you buy this product and you'll have peace and happiness. See, the world's peace is based on outward circumstances. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. The peace of Jesus lasts because it goes to the heart. 
The peace that Jesus leaves his disciples will be the peace that comes from the cross and the resurrection. Is it a wonder then that the first words Jesus speaks to the disciples after the resurrection are peace be with you? It's his first words in the Gospel of John. Jesus' peace is a peace that transcends circumstances. It's a peace that passes all understanding. And it's a concept rooted in the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. And shalom means a whole lot more than the English word peace. The English word peace connotes life without conflict. That's about it. Life without conflict. Shalom refers to the fullness of life. Life to the full as God intended it. It's a flourishing of life. A fully alive life, as St. Irenaeus said so long ago. This peace is unknown to the world. It's unknown to the world. And there are four dimensions to this peace. First and foremost, it's vertical. There's my, uh, <laughs> my stick figure. First and foremost, it's vertical. It's peace and harmony with God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin has left a crimson stain on all of us. And that sin alienates us from the living God. So what's the solution? The cross and the resurrection. The cross was the victory over sin, evil, and death. And the resurrection was a confirmation of that victory. As Eugene taught us in Colossians 1, it is through Jesus' blood shed on the cross that peace is made with God. All those who believe have shalom with the living God. And because of this shalom, there can be shalom in the other three dimensions. The horizontal dimension, peace with other people. According to Ephesians, even the great chasm between Jew and Gentile is overcome through Jesus' peace. Thirdly, the shalom that Jesus gives is personal. Peace with self. And fourthly, with creation. Shalom. The peace that Jesus gives is where all four relationships work together the way they were designed to work. The peace Jesus gives is the flourishing of life in all those four relationships. And it happens through the paraclete, working in us and through us. The paraclete enters our life and goes to work, bringing flourishing in our relationship with God. He enters our life and goes to work, bringing flourishing with others. He enters our life and goes to work, bringing flourishing with ourselves. And he goes to work. He enters our life and goes to work bringing a flourishing with creation. This is why we passed the peace this morning. It's a small gesture, but it shaped our hearts ever so slightly into that shalom, the shalom that Jesus brings through the paraclete. Now another characteristic of life in the spirit is love. 
We continue to return to this theme. By the end of this upper room, you're going to get tired of me talking about love. It's just throughout the upper room discourse. Last time, we talked about how the Spirit teaches us how to love. But we only love because He first loved us. In verse 31, we get the only passage in the New Testament where Jesus says He loves the Father. See, Jesus goes to the cross out of his great love for us, but also out of his great love for the Father. And that love is given expression, it's given words in the prayer of Gethsemane, where Jesus comes to grips with with the Father's will. The Son's will will be to please the Father. And the Father's will is that all men honor the Son. This is the overflowing love of the Trinity. The overflowing love of the living God. For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And it rains down on all of us. It rains down on all of us. And it's the paraclete, the paraclete who makes this love real in our lives. As Becca said, we have a baptism coming up next Sunday. Would love for all of you to be there and enjoy this great event. One of the highlights of our baptisms is hearing stories, hearing testimonies. And as I, was, as I was writing this sermon, the Spirit brought to my mind Margaret's story from our April baptism. Margaret is, uh, if we can get the next slide up there, she's fifth from the left on this slide. If you were there, when Margaret shared, first of all, she just exuded joy. I mean, she was bouncing around in joy. It was really fun. But she said this in her story. She said, the Lord, the Lord never gave up on me, even though he should have. Then she said, I came to faith when I was sitting in church and heaven opened up and God's love just poured down over me. God's love just poured down over me. The paraclete made the overflowing love of God real in her life. Have you felt that love? A pastor friend of mine decided to go to a counselor and on their first meeting, before he even sat down, the counselor asked him, what do you think is your greatest need? And my friend responded with a good Christian answer. He said, I think my greatest need is to know the will of God and to do it. And the counselor looked at him and said, I got a lot of work to do. No, he he said, uh, no, your greatest need is to know that you are loved. That's your greatest need. To know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. That's your greatest need. 
to know the overflowing love of the living God, we are boxed in by it. We're boxed in by the love of God. He should have given up on all of us. But he doesn't. And he won't. See, the living God doesn't just love you. It's his joy to love you. Do you believe that? It's his joy to love you. As one writer says, disapproval doesn't seem to be a part of God's DNA. God is just too busy loving us to have any time left for disappointment. That's our God. And the blessed paraclete is working inside of us to make that love real to us. What a gift we have in the paraclete. Now, while explaining these things, Jesus says a puzzling thing in verse 28, and I just, as an aside, want to say a few words about this. What does Jesus mean by the Father is greater than I? I don't know if you caught that when we read the text. What does he mean by that? Does he really mean that the Father is greater than the Son? Well, this is difficult, but there's no interpretation of this sentence which can, can conflict with other passages in this gospel which unambiguously affirm the deity of Jesus co-equal with the Father, but also the dependence of Jesus on the Father and the obedience of Jesus to the Father. The gospel affirms all of that. So how do we understand this statement? Well. Over the years, the church has understood the greatness of the Father here as solely in the fact that the Father gives and the Son receives. C.K. Barrett probably put it best when he said, the Father is the sender and commander, whereas the Son is God sent and obedient. I think that's probably the best we can do with that difficult statement. Okay, the third characteristic from this text of life in the Spirit is fearlessness. Fearlessness. Jesus began this chapter by commanding his followers to not be troubled. Here, he commands them, don't be troubled or afraid. In chapter 16, he'll command the disciples to have courage because he's overcome the world. To not fear is a theme, uh, also a theme in this upper room. Jesus wants to alleviate the fear of his disciples then and now for his going away. They and we do not need to be afraid because for one, the paraclete is with us. He is with us and in us. The paraclete, the presence of the perfect divine love is in us. And as John will say later, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. But two, they and we also don't need to be afraid because as Jesus says, the ruler of this world is powerless. Now, Jesus knows that Satan is physically on his way toward him right now in the Judas mob. And Jesus knows that tomorrow, Satan is bringing the cross. 
And though it will seem to those first disciples that Jesus will be defeated, and though it will seem darkness will win, things are not always as they seem. As John Stott says, of course, any contemporary observer who saw Jesus die would have listened with astonished incredulity to the claim that the crucified was a conqueror. I mean, look at him there on the cross, strung up with nails, pinned there and powerless. It does appear to be total defeat. And if there is a victory, it's a victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like and indeed was the defeat of goodness by evil is most certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he, Jesus, was himself overcoming. Things are not always as they appear. The evil one has no claim on Jesus. The claim the evil one has on all other humanity is their sin and guilt, but Jesus is sinless and guiltless. The evil one has no power over Jesus whatsoever. Jesus will go to the cross, not because he himself is worthy of death, nor because of Satan's power, but because the Father has commanded him to go for the sake of the world, for the sake of you and me. Jesus goes as an obedient son in voluntary self-sacrifice. So although it will appear that death will win, things are not always as they appear. You know, this is why it's so important to start each day in Scripture. It's so important to start each day in Scripture. So the paraclete can remind you again that Jesus is on the throne. Then as you walk through the day and you see the brokenness in our world, the paraclete can remind you again that things are not as they appear. Things are not as they appear. Sin, evil, and death are defeated foes. When death stung Jesus Christ, it stung Jesus Christ, it stung itself to death. As Jesus lives the next awful 24 hours, he wants his disciples to know the evil one has no hold on him. But also, because of his death and resurrection, the evil one also has no hold on those who belong to him. The evil one has no power over you. The evil one has no hold on you. The evil one has nothing on you. No one can ever snatch you out of his hand. So for those first disciples, don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't be confused. When everything goes down tomorrow, the evil one is not winning. Things are not as they appear. And for those of us today, 
Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't be confused with whatever happens tomorrow. The evil one has been defeated. Jesus is on the throne. And the paraclete is with you. And he is in you. And he will remind you that Jesus has won the victory. Things are not as they appear. So what a gift. What a gift we have in the paraclete. What a life we have in the Spirit through God's grace. Not only is the paraclete with us and in us, helping us know Jesus and make him known, he is with us and in us, teaching us and reminding us of all things Jesus. And he is at work deep within us to bring us peace, to remind us that we are boxed in by God's love and to remind us that things are not as they appear. The evil one has no hold on any of us. So don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. The blessed paraclete is with you and in you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen. Now receive this benediction. Jesus, who indwells you through the paraclete, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, his peace, and his power and have no fear. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.